This is Three Interesting Things. Hello and welcome to Three Interesting Things, a weekly podcast where we discuss the three most interesting things on the internet this week. I am your host, Don Grant. Joining me today, journalist and food editor for the Washingtonian magazine. Joining me from, you guessed it, Washington, Jessica Sidman. How are you doing, Jessica? Hi, Don. Thanks for having me on. It is great to have you on. So you are the food editor. Does that mean that you do reviews anymore? I know you did reviews at one time or another. Do you consider yourself more of a journalist or a reviewer? Or So I personally do consider myself more of a reporter. Um, you know, it, it's kind of funny because I think people see food, ed- food editor and they think of food journalism in a very two-dimensional way where you're either writing reviews or you're writing recipes. And for the most part, what I do is neither. Uh, I try to cover my beat like a crime reporter would cover crime or a political reporter would cover politics. I do sometimes put on a review hat, or at least uh, pre-COVID I did. Uh, for example, we do the magazine um, I work for, we do a ranking of the 100 very best restaurants in the D.C. area every year, or at least we did pre-COVID. So now I'm assuming, I mean, you talk about the fact that you're more of a journalist, which, I mean, it makes sense also because of the fact that you're based in Washington. I would imagine writing about issues having to do with food when you are in a city like D.C. takes on a whole different nuance because of the fact that you're dealing with politicians, because of the fact that you're dealing with policymakers. It's it's almost like the difference in covering food uh, and restaurants in, you know, Tulsa versus Los Angeles, because you're dealing with an industry where there is something specific that uh, informs itself more. Absolutely. I mean, food and politics are are linked no matter where you are, everything from the minimum wage to labor laws that affect the food that is farmed and on your plate. But of course, in Washington, there's that extra layer where you have uh, major political figures who are part of the dining scene and um, are the de facto celebrities and VIPs at a lot of restaurants. Well, and one of them was, in fact, not a part of the dining scene, which we will get into right now for thing number one. You ready? Yeah. Here we go. Thing one. Thing number one. Trump hotel employees reveal what it was really like catering to the right wing elite. This is a piece that you wrote in The Washingtonian, which has some tremendous dish about what it was like to serve people like Steve Mnuchin and Rudy Giuliani and, of course, your former president, Donald Trump. Um, Of all of the things that you reported in this particular story, and we'll get into some of the specifics in a second, what was the one that surprised you the most? Oh, gosh, there's (laughs) there's so much. (laughs) I I, I know. uh, So one of the things that uh, I uncovered in this piece I got a hold of this standard standard operating procedure document that the hotel steakhouse kept with very specific instructions on what to do and what to say when the former president dined in. Yeah, that thing is crazy. <laughs> it's like a pop star writer. It it, it has um you know, seven step instructions on just how to serve his Diet Coke. (laughs) That, you know, that was pretty fascinating to me. But so I guess one of the most interesting things, um, anecdotes in there to me was um, an incident where 
Trump questioned why his steak was smaller than his dining companions, according to a former chef. Uh, and so from then on, the chef who'd always served him um, ribeye or filet mignon switched to a 40-ounce tomahawk. So he would always have the largest steak in the steakhouse. I, I You know what? I had never heard of a 40-ounce steak before. I didn't even know that existed. <laughs> that's like That's huge. the size of an SUV. Yeah, that's huge. In the standard operating procedures manual, there were a, bu- a bunch of directions. You referred to the uh, how to serve the Diet Coke. I think you give it a bit of short shrift because that is insane. <laughs> it was not only how to do the Diet it's how to open the Diet Coke because there were specific instructions about how to open President Trump's Diet Coke. You had to, it was a seven-step process. You had to hold the lower third of the bottle because of the fact that he was a germaphobe. You know what's weird? I know a lot about Trump because he was in the news a little bit over the last four years, you might recall. I don't think I knew that he was such a big germaphobe. Yeah, and they, part of this uh, standard operating procedure is, you know, the very first thing that they had to do when he sat down was hand him a bottle of, um, Purell hand sanitizer. And of course, now actually, that's everybody wants their hand sanitizer, but this is um, before COVID, of course. That's right. You go, you, you went out of your way to talk about the fact that that was happening even pre COVID. And in fact, it also said that it discreetly had to be handed to him as if he was embarrassed almost to be receiving this hand sanitizer. Yes. The the document says discreetly present. Let's let's talk about the restaurant for a second, because the one thing that we do need to talk about is that Trump, as opposed to most of his predecessors, only ate in one restaurant in all of D.C., which was his own restaurant, the restaurant at his hotel, which is called in the most Trumpy name I can possibly imagine, BLT Prime. That is his hotel restaurant. But he did not eat in any other restaurant for the entire four years he was in office. That's right. And I think actually after writing this story, I understand um, a lot better why Um, he liked things the way he liked them and had very specific expectations for service and presentation and food. So, you know, to go somewhere where he's an unknown, um, I, I can see the hesitancy there. The other aspect of it, which I'm sure in that was in the back of his mind, you know, when he went to the Trump Hotel, which was where all the right-wing people hung out, he would be greeted by applause and standing ovation. Right. But um, if you know anything about Washington, D.C., it is a very liberal city. I think, you know, something like 5% of the city voted for Trump. So there's a big risk that if he went anywhere else in town, he would be greeted by jeers and boos and, you know, who knows what they're doing in the kitchen to his food. So in a lot of ways, it's not surprising that that's the only place he visited. You uh, you mentioned that in, uh, you mentioned also that sort of also applied to the staff as well, that there were many members of the staff who were embarrassed to wear, you know, to let people know that this is where they worked, to wear their uniforms on the metro, that kind of a thing, because people would, you know, give them the finger, people would tell them, why are you working for this monster? And and it led to a lot of uh, significant issues for people. I mean, yeah, there's definitely kind of a, a taboo in Washington, um, 
you know, if, if you have liberal friends and you work for the Trump Hotel, you might, you know, get some looks. So when they were working, I think um, a lot of people who maybe were more left-leaning or even just ambivalent about politics did learn to put on a facade and put on a show, get those tips and, and maybe hint that they were uh, supporters of the president. But the fact is uh, a lot of them de dealt with harassment from outside forces uh like you said i mentioned one um employee who who did love his job at the trump hotel and wore you know his uniform on the metro once and people called him a racist and harassed him and he never wore it on the metro again there were hispanic employees in the kitchen whose own families refused to talk to them, according to one of my sources, because they worked at the Trump Hotel. It's a tricky line to walk because you also have to think about the fact that for many of these people, this is a very good job. This is a very well-paying job. You referred to Michael Rivera, former bartender in the lobby bar, who said he made more than $100,000 a year with tips. And that's hard to walk away from, even if you do not approve of your employer. Right. And I would say almost everyone I spoke to said it, it was the best paying job they ever had um, with great benefits, too. And the ones who did not agree with Trump, I think they kind of separated it, the work in their minds. You know, it was a fancy steakhouse in Washington, D.C., and they were making good money and that was separate from their politics. I also enjoyed the detail that you threw in there that it was almost sort of like the old mafia days. You talk about one restaurant manager who said, quote, I've had people try to palm me to get closer to someone's table if a politician was in or to try to sit at Trump's table, which is a big no-no. Uh, and they would really sort of hear it here. Here's a hundred bucks. Get me close to, you know, Steve Mnuchin. Here's a hundred bucks. Get me close to Rudy Giuliani. Mm -hmm. Hey, speaking of Giuliani, Giuliani gets a special, <laughs> uh, a special place in your piece uh, because most of the people who work at the hotel say he was easily one of the most difficult people. How so? Right. He, I, I mean, he was just always there from what I've heard from sources. He treated the hotel restaurant like his personal office and would sometimes be there all day doing meetings, um, having meals, having, you know, entertaining people, taking photos with people. Yeah, you you actually pointed out that at one point someone made it official and made a black and gold plaque right. that read uh, Rudolph Giuliani private office and the restaurant kept it uh, like right behind the host stand to place it at his table right before he arrived. Yes. I mean, that's so this was his this was his office. It was. Yeah. He I think probably spent more time there than pretty much anyone. <laughs> A couple other details which I, I sort of found interesting was that, you know, you you talk about anyone who was not a Trump fan had to learn that you had to sort of put up a, a facade and that you had to sort of lie and say, you know, a lot of times you'd be you'd be saying things like, yes, I support the president. He's an amazing guy. He's such a, a kind soul. And you would have to say these things on a regular basis because of the clientele that was in front of you the entire time knowing uh, that this was sort of lying to yourself. You, you do have to feel a little bit uh, it's it's a tricky situation to be in. It is, it is. And uh, they weren't really supposed to talk politics there. And I think probably mo uh, most of the people just tried to avoid it altogether. But, you know, I think there were some instances where you, the employees would tell these little white lies to, you know, 
ingratiate themselves to the guests and and fit into the culture of the place you know that that's just the kind of place it was and you mentioned that a lot of these people it wasn't a matter of sort of catching hell from bosses or patrons that were actually getting it from their families when they went home because as you mentioned about 80 to 90 percent of the kitchen staff was hispanic and so a lot of the people who worked there their friends didn't talk to them anymore some of their uh, the hispanic workers mm, their right, families right. wouldn't talk to them when they were working there even back home families in other countries exactly exactly and then um i also mentioned various um purveyors for the restaurants like one of the chefs told me that like a microgreen purveyor refused to work with him um because they couldn't in good conscience deliver to the hotel and another chef uh said that vendors that he'd worked for with for years and and had great relationships with uh, were suddenly sending him rotten vegetables and bad cuts of meat and he just imagined there's some person in the warehouse who sees ah this is going to the trump hotel i'm just gonna give him the worst stuff so he had to double and triple check everything he was getting to make sure he wasn't serving anything bad. And of course, now here we are in 2021 and we've had, uh, you know, the the Trump brand is uh, has, has suffered a, a few little setbacks. I'm not sure if you've heard about any of them. But of <laughs> course, you know, you you had the capital attack, you had Trump's defeat, yeah. you had the pandemic, you had all this stuff. What is going on with the hotel now? I mean, you you reported in the piece that the property took a 63% hit to its revenue last year. Is the hotel up for sale? Yeah, the hotel definitely has suffered this double whammy. One with the pandemic, which has devastated the hospitality industry more broadly. And two, honestly, with the president losing, uh, former president losing the election. And a lot a lot of the business there came from people who were looking to curry favor in the White House or, you know, just be a part of the uh, political culture and and the party in charge and yeah to bask in the aura of the sphere of of trump right right and now that's not a thing because he's not in office so he's not even in the city anymore it's funny to think about like i mean what cause will he would he ever have to come back to washington if he didn't want to aside from maybe testifying at his own defense um what what cause would he have to come back he's just going to be parked out in mar-a-lago for as long as he damn well pleases i guess yeah i'm not sure i i don't see him coming back for a steak anytime soon to be honest (laughs) but of course the white house does now have uh, a new resident and so now in another piece that you reported there are a lot of restaurants that are currently trying to work back channels to get a visit from president biden or kamala harris now as someone who does not live in dc Break it down for me in terms of obviously there is a tremendous amount of cachet that would come with being able to say, yes, President Biden ate here. What's the benefit of this aside from just being able to say that they ate here? Do do these restaurants where they ate see a tremendous boom in business the way they did when Barack Obama was president? Right, right. Yeah, I think we do have to go back to when Obama was president because he came to D.C. at a time when the dining scene here was really blossoming for the first time and getting starting to get national attention. And he and Michelle were known as foodies and would go out to the cool new hot spots and were always out on the town. And, and I remember uh, in the early Obama years, you know, there was the Obama bump became <laughs> a thing, right? 
where he would go to a restaurant and overnight, you know, their sales might double. So, you know, it really brought a lot of attention to these businesses. Do we know if that happened? Did that happen with Bush? By the way, sorry to interrupt. Do we know if that happened with Bush? Because you reported on the fact that that D.C. is a very blue town. It's a very left wing town. Right. And consequently, a Democratic president is much more likely and more comfortable to be seen out and about. And that also explains why Trump was not seen. Well, one of the many reasons why. So I wonder if you go back to a more sort of standard Republican president, you know, like one of the Bushes, Mm -hmm. I wonder how comfortable they were being seen if, if that kind of thing happened then. Yeah. George W. Bush was also a bit of a homebody. You know, like there's a Mexican restaurant that in town that he is known to frequent. But I, I'm not sure that it was the same kind of bump. But also I think, you know, the dining scene was a lot different then. Um, and there wasn't just the same excitement about eating out as there is now. And kind of just flash forwarding to um, Biden. I mean, he's not the adventurous foodie that the uh, the Obamas were known as. Uh, He's more of like a, you know, pizza, pasta, sub ice cream guy, you know? So I imagine Kamala Harris is probably in the crosshairs of a lot of restaurants. Yes. Yeah. So she's known as more of the the foodie um, in this administration. So there's a lot lot of excitement about her eating out in D.C., and then there's the added dynamic of, well, we're in a pandemic and it really shines a, a light on the plight that this industry is going through. And so there's there's that extra bit of, of publicity that gives not just individual businesses, but, you know, the need for government relief and, and the struggles of these restaurateurs and the chefs and the workers who who serve your food. You give us a tremendous segue into interesting thing number two. Look at you. (laughs) Thing two. Thing number two is how restaurants are dealing with COVID now because here we are. As, as places are trying to open up again, as we sort of see the, the machinations of things, there's all kinds of things happening. We're going to get in a second to what you reported on, some of the anti-COVID gadgets that are coming up in restaurant dining rooms. Mm. But first, let's talk about what's going on in D.C. I can tell you that here in Toronto, uh, we have not had dine-in eating in any restaurants, I believe, since the Nixon administration. That's what it feels <laughs> like. It's been, a, it's been a long, long time. It's, it's takeout, it's order out, that kind of a thing. Can you actually in Washington go into a restaurant and eat now? You can. Wow. What's it like? Tell me. (laughs) I know. uh, Indoor dining was shut down um, for a good month or so. And then it was extended because of uh, all the political turmoil surrounding the inauguration. But now they've opened indoor dining to 25% percent capacity in dc and and as much as 50 percent in um the virginia suburbs i personally have not dined indoors that's just my personal comfort level i've just been ordering a lot of takeout have you seen any reporting or done any reporting on the number or percentage of places that did go 
belly up in the in the last year because I know here in Toronto it's it has been you know like just the one of the main sort of strips of, of street where I go back and forth and close to my house <clears throat> every week you know you would go down it and you would see another place that went down and another place that went down and places that were long-standing I mean you know you have it here I don't know but there we've had Starbucks go down we've had you know 25 Starbucks yeah. go under in town I mean has has there been any significant reporting about what uh, what the damage has been I don't know the stats off the top of my head but but, you know, I don't even think that we've really seen the full picture yet. Yeah, we're not going to for a while. I think you're right. I th- yeah, I think, you know, the ripple effects from this will continue for years to come. And, you know, you might have places closing a year from now because of the lingering effects of this pandemic. Well, it's funny. You say the lingering effects of the pandemic. Based on what you just said two minutes ago, it sounds like you and I are in a similar uh, boat, which is the sense that you say that you have not been to any of these restaurants uh, since they've opened up, even though you could, nor have I. You have more Mm -hmm. cause to go to one even than I do because you actually work in the industry. So if I asked you honestly, what would you say is the main reason why you haven't gone? Just because you feel like it would be too much of a, a, you, you wouldn't want to take the risk? Am I extrapolating or is that right? There's so much uncertainty about it. You know, I yeah. feel like there's there's mixed data. Uh, to be totally honest, part of it is also I have an 18 month old, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'll that'll do it as well. No, but I think I, you you and I are kind of dancing around it. But I think you're absolutely right, which is that you know we talk about uh, people like to think that when the pandemic is over, which I mean it sounds ridiculous because it's not going to be sort of like a right. single, uh, you know, right, t- right, right. T- Tuesday we're declaring the pandemic over, and mm-hmm. it, when that happens, it's not all of a sudden like every single person is going to be throwing the doors open of the barn and letting the fresh air in there's going to be a lot of people like you or like me who are "Eh, it's been a while since i've been in a restaurant and i'm not sure what they're doing with this and i know that i got vaccinated but i don't know if do i have to wear a mask and it's more comfortable i know that i can get this place on uber eats because we've been doing it for the last year and that is going to lead to still a lot more issues for for sort of the service industry yeah absolutely i mean i think there are a lot of trends that are here to stay in terms of you know i think takeout is now places that never would have done takeout before have said this is permanently part of our business right you know the outdoor patios are being built up with more permanent structures and but that that's i gotta say that's one part i find fascinating because you're in dc i'm in toronto we have roughly the same meteorological conditions mm-hmm. you know we, we have the same winters the same whatevers i know that here one of the things that happened as it started to get colder in october and november was that they were building these kind of plastic little di- dying out and, igloos and outside and, yeah but you know my my, my daughter said to me as we were driving by one of them one day, she's like, so wait, so it's not safe to eat inside because it's an enclosed area, but you can eat outside in this enclosed area? It seems a little counterintuitive. Right, right. I think it, it's a very controversial thing because in theory, you're dining in one of these pods with your pod. Uh, <laughs> so you are only exposed to those people. And in theory, they're cleaning in between and airing them out in between but um you know there there's also a gray area of okay your server has to come into your bubble 
to serve you and then you are exposed to each other. So it's not fully outdoors as much as right. we want to pretend. Well, and this gets into a little bit about what you were writing about, the, the new anti-COVID gadgets that are popping up in restaurant right, right. dining rooms. So there's a number of them. Most of us have seen, you know, these little igloos, as you mentioned, or the plexiglass partitions, or now a lot of restaurants have menus that are QR code based where you can scan them and look at them on your phone so that you do not have to actually mm-hmm. hold a physical menu in your hand. But you have other things, for example, like germicidal ultraviolet lighting, which is <laughs> uh, owners of restaurants are, you say that this one restaurant dropped half a million bucks on an air filtration and purification system well they have 20 20 more than 20 locations right but when you talk about some of these air purification systems we're not talking about the thing that you know that you get you know down at the sharper image we're talking no. about i know my my dentist when i was at my dentist a few weeks ago was talking they they bought these some of these air purifiers that are, you know, the high end, you know, you're talking five figures for just one of these things to put into a number of different rooms. And now some of these upgrades are virus killing ultraviolet lights. Absolutely. I mean, the tricky thing of it is that is that a lot of these restaurants, they are not built for takeout, right? They cannot survive long term doing what they're doing they have to have people inside their dining rooms which obviously is complicated and so they're trying to do whatever they have to do and to that end you also talked about that there was a catering company la prima food group which was using this thing called a path spot scanner which what it does it's it's interesting because this is approaching it from a different perspective which is that you have to after you wash your hands And after you scrub up like a surgeon, you have to plug in your ID code and scan your hands to see if the device then detects things like salmonella, norovirus, any foodborne contaminants. It looks at them and if it it finds any of those things, a little stop sign pops up and tracks exactly how often you are washing your hands. So it's almost, as you mentioned, it's like the big brother of hand washing. Exactly, the big brother of hand washing. When it comes to the disinfectant aspect of things, we talked about the ultraviolet light. The other thing that many restaurants are starting to use now are things like fogging machines, which as you say, look right out of Ghostbusters. You have people in white coats who are kind of going through restaurants with these virus killing foggers and they spray a coat of disinfectant on any surface that guests might touch. I mean... These things are great in in theory, but at the same time, they might also lead to that kind of hesitation that people like you or I have about going out to a restaurant. Is that if you know that, you know, the Ghostbuster with the fogging machine was just at your table two minutes before you got there, does that really, really say make you say, oh, give me that shrimp risotto. I want some of that. Some of it is helpful and some of it maybe is security theater. Right, right. The same way, the same way we get in airports. Exactly. Right? You know, it just makes you feel a little safer to know that a place cares that much and is putting in the effort to make sure things are clean and safe. Which leads us to the last thing you talked about, which are these thermal scanners when you go into a restaurant, a thermal temperature scanner. Now, most of us by this point have had our temperature taken umpteen times going into various and sundry places. But a restaurant is a little bit of an odd one because, you know, restaurants, for the most part, the idea and the vibe is you are welcome here. But now, of course, you have to go into a place, look at a screen, and it tells you if your temperature is above 100.4 degrees, sorry, go home and order Uber Eats, which is not really the vibe that a lot of these places are going for. Right. But, you know, got a fever. 
go home <laughs> and it you know <laughs> <laughs> no you know you should i guess true yeah and, and i guess I, the I, i'm assuming the idea is that when you or i walk into this place we see that screen and we don't think about ourselves getting our temperature taken we think about oh everybody else sitting in this restaurant has had their temperature mm -hmm. taken before mm -hmm. they came in there right and as we know with COVID, it can a fever is not the only symptom. Right. You can still be contagious without that symptom. Just to wrap this this section up for a second, I, going back to the airport analogy, I remember I think it was uh, on a New York Times podcast that someone was talking about you know when are we getting back to normal? Are we going to get back to normal? And the analogy that the doctor made was that we're going to get back to normal in the same sense that things went back to normal, I'm making air quotes for the listener, after 9-11, mm -hmm. right? Which is that things did not go back to the way they were before. There was a new normal. We had to take off our shoes at the airport. We had a whole bunch of other things that we had to do that we didn't have to do before. And that's kind of going to be our future now as well, which is that even after all of us get our second shot of, of the vaccine, and even after masks are not going to be as ubiquitous as they are right now, there's still going to be a lot of things different. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're already seeing so many of those things that, that will be permanent, whether it, as I was saying, the outdoor dining being a bigger component here, you know, they legalized alcohol delivery, which previously you, you couldn't get a cocktail with your pizza order, but now you can, that, right. that has permanently they did that just during the pandemic. That's yeah, just, yeah. Well, that's I don't. Like what law they passed? Yeah, the exactly. Here, here in DC, I don't. What it, I don't know what it is like for you in Toronto. Can you get yeah, a margarita? No, there's no your, way in hell. No, you can't. No. <laughs> no. No. Yeah, I mean, and that was a huge help to restaurants at the beginning of the pandemic to suddenly be able to offer these batch cocktails to go or or beer or wine. Um, which they previously were not allowed to do, but that's a huge part of dine-in revenue and profit. That's where a lot of profit comes from for restaurants. Thing three. Thing number three. Oh, I can't wait to talk about this. Spies, <laughs> dossiers, and the insane lengths restaurants will go to to track and influence food critics. Now, we talked at the top of the show about the fact that you at one time did a bit of reviewing yourself and obviously in your business you know a fair amount of reviewers who will go out and do these things i would imagine that most of us not in the industry have an idea of the fact that restaurants will do a lot of things to make sure they get a great review but after reading your piece i was like oh merciful crap the <laughs> things that they do it is insane it is insane. You know, it's like the CIA or something <laughs> for some restaurants. Obviously, the amount of information that is tracked is is just insane. Obviously, the photos of, of critics in the kitchen or in training manuals, but there are places that will know your spouse's name, family members, friends' names, uh, you know, every alias you've used, phone numbers, emails, what's your favorite wine, where do you like to sit, what kind of server. There was one place here in D.C. where they tracked critics' alcohol tolerance, <laughs> which which uh, I, I was apparently on that list, and it said um, three drinks till tipsy, <laughs> which I, oh, which I thought that. was actually pretty generous. I would I'd say it was probably closer to two, to be honest, but. <laughs> 
In this piece, you use a reviewer, a well-known reviewer in DC, Tom Sietzma, and he, one of the things you talk about is that there is a picture of him which is posted in many, many restaurants around town, and he doesn't even know when or where the picture was taken. Right, right. Yeah, so a lot of these restaurant people just kind of circulate whatever uh, photos they have, and there's this one photo of him. It looks like it was at a winery or something. There are some barrels in the background, but every restaurant has this one photo of him which isn't even a very great photo but um it's it's like their most prized possession one of the things you mentioned is that spring and fall are critic season that that they pay particular (laughs) attention to detail during critic season and now i did not know this why would spring and fall be particularly big critic seasons when it comes to restaurants well at least here in dc you know tom sietzma from the washington post who is one of the top critics in town he puts out a spring and a fall dining guide. Those are his two biggest dining guides of the year. So I think that's the main reason why. Oh, so so it's specific. That's funny that it's about around one particular person. Right. And then, you know, for Washingtonian Magazine, we do our 100 very best restaurants issue at the beginning of the year, usually February issue. So we're scouting for that in the fall. So fall is the the main eating out season right but as you mentioned in the piece and i and i love this analogy you say that the the, that restaurants at this point when they know that there is a critic like this coming they they mastermind a culinary version of the truman show (laughs) basically creating this this fictional bubble around the person you mentioned that at one point sitzma had a table to his right filled with uh you know a smartly dressed couple having the best time of their lives and these people i don't want to say that they were plants but at the same time they were they were seated there quite deliberately so that they you know they would show these regulars having a wonderful time right within the vicinity of this very very influential critic yeah that was definitely one of the craziest revelations to me was that um they will you know call up uh, friends or regulars to and, and plant them at a table nearby and then they can you know, pretend like, oh, we're having the best time ever. This is so great and create a sort of ambiance and then double as spies and eavesdrop on the table and hear, okay, what did the critic say when the server dropped off this plate and, you know, any any other little tidbits like that and then either text it to a manager or excuse themselves to the restroom and and uh, unload the intel behind the scenes. And they won't just call in their friends to be, you know, plants and and to be patrons. They will also call back in sort of the A-team of employees for working there. If Tom Sietzman walks into your restaurant and some of your best people have just gone home for the night, you're texting them saying, get your ass back in here. We need the A-team on this right now. And then this thing kind of thing actually happens. Right, right. And then instead of whatever line cook or sous chef might normally be preparing the plate, the executive chef is doing it all him or herself. And then not just making one dish, but making two or even three versions of the dish and seeing which one looks the nicest, sending out the one that looks the nicest and then taste testing the backup to make sure everything tastes right taking photos of the dishes that go out as evidence. I don't know. Um, Even taking photos of the plates after they're eaten and returned to the kitchen um, to see, okay, how much of 
this meal did the critic eat did they (laughs) not touch their mashed potatoes or soak up all the sauce there was one place where (laughs) this was so crazy to me they got a plate back from a critic and you know a half-eaten plate and then one of the chefs actually took a bite off the dirty plate to try it (laughs) for themselves and declared it was in fact good Let's assume this was pre-COVID. Uh, yeah, pre- <laughs> this was pre-COVID. All of this is pre-COVID. <laughs> I must admit, I-, I found that detail to be absolutely fascinating. The fact that the chef, the chefs are preparing two versions of the same, you know, two foie gras parfaits, two steak frites, two of everything, taking the nicer looking one and sending it out, sampling the one that doesn't go out, taking pictures of it before it goes, taking pictures of it when it comes back again for hints about what they had or hadn't liked. They're doing this for their own survival and, and it actually makes sense. One of the things you talked about was a dossier or quote, a, a critic Bible that had been made up and circulated around restaurants in town. Yeah, there, I mean, there are several that I've seen there. There's certain information that's traded between managers or maitre d's, uh, and then everyone kind of adds to it. Um, a lot of information is also kept on you know kind of like back-end reservation systems but places that care a lot about critics will just keep insane amount of details about about critics and and people who have the power to influence whether patrons come to their restaurants and you mentioned the fact that even though there's obviously a tremendous amount of competition amongst a lot of restaurants there is also a lot of sharing about some of this information about these critics. And it's it's almost like a trench mentality, sort of like, you know, if we're going to get uh, screwed by this guy, we want to make sure nobody else does. And so most restaurants know, as you mentioned at the, off the top, they know their food writers' aliases, significant others, friends. They know what days of the week and times they typically like to eat, uh, preferred dishes, wines, servers, sections of the dining room. All this is in the dossiers, which leads to one industry veteran giving you the quote that said uh there are no anonymous critics in this city my first full-time food writing job at an alt weekly called washington city paper i was the first food editor there not to be anonymous (laughs) and i remember i think it was my first day someone asked me if i wanted to keep the secret phone line and i was like what is what (laughs) (laughs) and it turned out that the the paper had a special dedicated phone line for the food editor to make restaurant reservations so that the caller id wouldn't track back to either their personal cell phone or um or the the publication, but I I decided not to be anonymous for a number of reasons. One because I I, I took it more the job in more of a reporting direction and less about uh, restaurant reviews. Two I wasn't um, I wasn't anonymous. I'd been reporting on the dining scene for the last few years, and I did a lot of interviews in person, and people knew who I was, and I wasn't gonna all of a sudden pretend like they didn't know who I was. And and third, as I was saying. It's not real. The anonymity is not real. Anyone who wants to know what you look like knows what you look like. Well, now let me ask you a question. Now, in a city the size of Washington, let's say, for example, that I run a bigger, I, I run, you know, Le Diplomat, and I, I know who every uh, reviewer is. You know, there's no anonymous reviewers anymore. How many people am I keeping track of? 
in general, like I know, I like just in a in a ballpark figure. You know, I I have my dossier in the back. I have a picture of you sitting on the thing. Uh, you know, I I'm telling all my staff who to look for. How many people am I keeping track of in this thing? <laughs> well, you know, it's changed a lot. I wrote that story in uh, 2017. And I think even since then, things have changed a lot. I mean, here here in D.C., we have two major critics. We have the Washington Post and Washingtonian Magazine. We have uh, one of my colleagues is our full-time um, restaurant critic, and she, she is anonymous um, or tries to be anyway. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, you have other – you have – all these other people who report on the dining scene or are influencers and Instagram accounts and, you know, the new trend, which I, I didn't really get into in 2017, but I think would probably be a part of the story now is, you know, just all of these influencers who, you know, they, they definitely are not anonymous, you know, right. like they, they are going, they know they're coming in. And not, not just them, but just, just, you know, apps like Yelp, right? I mean, like if, if, if you're, if uh, the average person is wandering through Washington and they've just been down the mall and they've just gone here, you know, the average tourist here, they're just going to pull out their phone and say, right, what's it, right, you know, they're right. going to Yelp a nice restaurant near us. So that's going to make a big difference as well. Right. I personally don't really believe that critics have that ability to make or break a restaurant in the same way that they did maybe a decade ago or even five years ago when you wrote the story yeah yeah even someone sort of as well known and and legendary as tom seatsma even someone like him he couldn't make or break a restaurant no actually a, a fun anecdote there's a restaurant here called founding farmers and he, a couple years ago, wrote a zero star review that was just devastating. But this restaurant continues to this day, or I mean, at least pre-pandemic, to be the number one most booked restaurant in the entire country on Open Table. Really? Yes. So it's the opposite of the the Guy Fieri review for his Times Square restaurant from the New York Times. Do you remember that one? <laughs> yes. Oh, of course. Of course. Oh, the, class, the classic takedown. Right. So, you know, <laughs> clearly people didn't care that he gave it zero stars. It's still an extremely popular restaurant. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah, it is true. I mean, the power of a lot of these things has changed so much in the gig industry and in the app industry. And at the same time, even though, you know, I think not to say they don't have any power, I think I think maybe they have critics do have some power to, you know, give places a bump if they if they write a good review um, or if they're at the top of some list. But even even if that power is diminished, the a lot of restaurants still care like they did a decade ago, right? Right, right. So it's still that old media prestige where review from the critic of the paper of record of the city is still extremely important. Um, and they're willing to go to these great lengths no matter what. And the question that arises from that is, if these people still care so much, the question is, is it because the reviewers are wielding power or is it simply because of antiquated thinking? You know, and and who knows what the answer to that is. And and then throw in the pandemic. So everything we're talking about was pre-pandemic. But what does criticism really look like coming out of this, right? Yeah. Because it's a good question. Uh, at least here and I know in a lot of other places around the country, um, reviews have been put on hold or they're not the same. You know, critics aren't 
writing critical things. They're using their column as a space to highlight businesses that are offering good food, but not to do the traditional um, kind of critiques that they're known for. And, you know, we... For example, paused our 100 best, hundred very best restaurant ranking. Tom Seatsma from the Washington Post isn't doing starred reviews right now. So at what point is it okay, if ever, to bring that back, right? Yeah. And what what's fair? And, and there's a little bit of an internal conflict of you want this industry to survive and thrive but you're historically not really supposed to be a cheerleader for the industry yeah. right that's an interesting tension it really is yeah because, because now I, I'm, what i'm hearing that you're saying to me is that it's almost like the job of the reviewer which used to be to you know thumbs up or thumbs down these various and sundry places is now to say hey these are the places that have survived the pandemic let us make sure that businesses are still thriving and and kind of you know, kind of cheerleading or kind of promoting restaurants and saying still you should be going to restaurants as opposed to saying this one sucks because it had a bad martini. Right, right, right. I mean, traditionally, the the role of the critic is to look out for the diner, right? To make sure that you're spending your money wisely. And now there's also this extra dimension of spending your money at some place that you want to survive and and to support and it's important but it's not the way it's always worked and i'm not sure what that will end up looking like long term and that will do it jessica thank you so much for joining us it has been an absolute delight do you have any uh, socials that you would like people to follow you on sure thanks for having me uh you can follow me on twitter and instagram at j sidman S-I-D-M-A-N. If you care about um, politics and food, I post a lot about the intersection of the two. Which is actually, it's funny, we, you know, we were just talking about the fact that criticism is in a bit of a weird, tense crossroads. I guess your gig is a little bit more protected from that because of the fact that you're not doing criticism, you're just doing reporting. And so, you know, there's always going to be reporting on politics and food and that kind of a thing. So, uh, so you're good to go. <laughs> I hope so. There's certainly have a, there's there certainly have been no shortage of stories to write about. It's been a very busy year, to say the least. Hopefully it'll continue busy in the best possible way. Exactly. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Hey, what's the most interesting thing you've seen on the internet this week? Fact? Article? Something else? We want it. Email us at threeinterestingthings at gmail.com. Follow our Instagram at three, that's the number three interesting things, or tweet it to us at three interesting. You'll get a shout out on the show. Hey, if you're enjoying the podcast, head on over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you next week.